Good morning. The song of invitation this morning after our study will be number 276. 276. And I'd like to encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a section of scripture this morning that should be one of warning and we should take it seriously. I, um, a couple of years ago, uh, we were up in North uh, Arkansas and we were visiting the church there in Harrison where uh, Dennis Carroll's father, Jack, uh, lives and worships and is an elder there. And uh, I was talking to Brother Carroll uh, before services began and he was introducing me to... Uh, to some other folks that he knew me when I was a little boy. They they were from Pine Bluff originally when I was small. And Brother Carroll said, well, this here is one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. And uh, I, I don't know about that. I, I guess that uh, anybody who preaches the truth will be a hellfire and brimstone preacher to some degree. The Bible certainly does talk about fire, brimstone, and hell. Uh, and this particular study this morning should be an eye-opener to the reality that God means business. That God is serious. That God's judgment is serious. And that we need to take Him seriously. We need to take His Word seriously. Strange fire. If Nadab and Abihu were to walk in this morning and we were to ask them, to tell us what they knew and understood about God and to give us some pointers, if you will. They would tell us some things about God that we do need to hear. They have learned the lessons the hard way. And we need to think about these things. You know, lessons from the Old Testament are important. In Romans 15 and verse 4, we are told that the things that are written aforetime are written for our learning. And... Though they be dead, yet they speak. Abel is mentioned in Hebrews 11 and verse 4 as being one who is dead, but yet he speaks. He speaks good things. He speaks things of encouragement and the need to obey the Lord regardless of how others may treat us. We need to be faithful to the Lord. Nadab and Abihu actually tell us the opposite lesson. or That is when I say opposite. Well, I mean that... God means business, and if you do not obey Him, He will punish you. You will suffer the consequences of your rebellion to God. Though they be dead, yet they speak. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. Let's read verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to just focus in on verses 1 through 3. Then Nadab and Abihu... The sons of Aaron, each, put, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses, saying to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come, come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp, so they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing of the, of the oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. 
you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Now that's the reading and that's the text and one of the things that stands out to me in this text is that to disregard the holiness of God, to disrespect his authority and to approach him in a flippant disrespectful manner will bring about his wrath upon you and that's not something that I, I, I would wish on anyone and I don't think anybody here wants that let's okay set the setting if you will let's go back a little bit in time and the events leading up to Leviticus chapter 10, what has transpired in just a few years? Okay, well, actually not even years. A short period of time. Go back to Exodus 5 and verse, or Exodus chapters 5 and through chapter 14. We have the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. You have the, the, the ten plagues poured out on Egypt. And eventually the tenth plague, which resulted in the loss, the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, in which Pharaoh finally said, Okay, okay, go. So the children of Israel left Egypt. Then, of course, Pharaoh changed his mind and pursued them. And then in chapter 14, eventually as they crossed through the Red Sea, and they all made it safely to the other side, that Pharaoh's army entered into the sea and followed them, and the Lord caused the waters to come back and killed all of them. In fact, the last verse of Exodus chapter 14 makes this statement. The Lord saved Israel that day. So Israel was delivered, and God then gave the law to Israel in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. They had arrived at Mount Sinai just months after they had been delivered, and now they had received the law, and... Then, of course, the pattern for the tabernacle and its utensils and everything regarding the worship of God was given to Moses on the mount. The pattern was given to him. Exodus 25 through 29, which the Hebrew writer also points out that Moses made everything according to the pattern. And so the pattern was given and they were to be executed. They were to make fulfill this pattern uh, when they accumulated everything and accomplished all that God had commanded, then the worship was going to begin. The instructions pertaining to the burning of incense and purification and the making of holy things was given in chapters 30 and 31. And of course, all of this is given, being given to Moses, and down below, the children of Israel did not know what had happened to Moses. So they asked Aaron to make them a golden calf. And so Aaron gives the instructions for them to take their earrings and their gold and silver and everything and throw it, give it to them. And, and he made this golden calf. And the children of Israel bowed down to this idol that they had gotten from Egypt, actually, the idea from Egypt. And, of course, God's wrath then was demonstrated towards the children of Israel. Many of them died. The making of the tabernacle and its furnishing, the priest clothing and everything that was then made in chapters 35 through 40. As you get to Leviticus, you have the regulations pertaining to the sacrificial system. All of the different sacrifices, the grain offerings, the, the meal offerings, all of the things that were commanded, also the sacrifices of the animals for the sin offerings, all those things are given. And then Aaron and the priests, his sons are consecrated. Aaron and his sons are consecrated as priests to the Lord. In Exodus 29 through uh, and Leviticus 8, actually, as instructed from Exodus 29. Then the priestly ministry begins. In chapter 9, Aaron and his sons offer sacrifices. And in fact, what happens is, fire from heaven comes down and consumes the burnt offering on the altar, which they had made according to the pattern. In fact, in Leviticus 9 and verse 23, it says, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat 
on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. They were in awe of what they had seen. The very next verse in Leviticus chapter 10, we read then of Nadab and Abihu. What would Nadab and Abihu tell us about God? I would think that the first thing that they would tell us is that God does indeed mean what he says. That God means what he says and that silence is not permissive. Notice again in verse 1, the Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. What made this fire profane before the Lord? What was it? I'll tell you what it was. God had not commanded it. That's what made it profane. You see, it was not from God. It was from whom? Nadab and Abihu. They are the ones who did something that God had not told them to do. Now, they would tell you real quick, God means what he says. We've learned that lesson the hard way. You see, God had told them what he wanted. In chapter 16 and verse 12, we are told that they were commanded to take the fire from the altar to burn their incense. They were to put the fire in their censer and they were then to put the incense on the fire, but the fire was to come from the altar. You go back to chapter 9 and verse 24, we find out that the fire on the altar came from God. The fire came from God and started the fire on the altar. This fire was to burn perpetually, continually. And it was the fire from the altar that was to be taken for the burning of incense. Uh, there are many who try to escape the force of this point that uh, we read in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. I read yesterday where one fellow said, well, it wasn't because they did something that God had not commanded them regarding the fire. They were killed because they approached God while drunk. Well, I don't know where that fellow got that from, but it tells us specifically why God destroyed them. They offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. Some say, well, he had a, they, they had a bad attitude. Well, sure they had a bad attitude. They didn't do what God said. The strange fire was unauthorized fire. They had gotten the fire from somewhere other than the altar. That's what happened. I don't know if they just felt rushed. They were in a hurry. I don't know if they just thought, well, it really doesn't matter. I don't really know what they were thinking, but this is what I do know. They had gotten fire from somewhere besides where God had commanded them to get it, and therefore it was profane, and God judged them for that. And now, remember, this is the beginning, the establishment of the system, the, of the law of Moses for the children of Israel. This was the very beginning. Now, God did not strike everybody dead from this point on who did things such as this. There were people who did a lot worse than that. There were people who did things that were a lot, lot worse than that. But God didn't strike them dead immediately. Why did God strike Nadab and Abihu dead on this occasion? Well, it was because to set a message from the very beginning, this is God's viewpoint. This is God's perspective. This is God's judgment for anyone who does not approach him how he has instructed them to approach him. For those who do not do what he tells them to do, this is God's judgment. Just because he didn't strike everybody else dead does not mean that he doesn't feel the same way. This is a lesson that God expects us to learn from Nadab and Abihu. They learned the hard way. We can learn from their, their lesson, from what they experienced. We do not have the liberty to add to, to take away from, or to alter in any way the words of God. I think Nadab and Abihu would make that very clear to us. Look, we shouldn't have done that. Man, we should have done exactly what God said. We do not have the liberty to change God's will. And we see this in other examples in the Old Testament. Cain, his offering was not of faith. Abel's was of faith. 
Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. But Cain's was not. And thus Cain became angry and killed his brother. Cain did not do what God told him to do. And thus his sacrifice, his worship, was not accepted by God. Moses, in Numbers chapter 20, verses 8 through 24. Moses did something that you think, well, that's not a really big deal. But it was Moses, number one, God's chosen leader of the children of Israel. And he did not do what God told him to do. He did something different. In fact, he did something that God had previously told him to do. Remember, previously God had told Moses to strike a rock, that water may come from it. So he struck that rock. Now, God tells Moses to do something else. He says, speak to the rock. In Numbers chapter 20. So Moses strikes the rock, then he speaks to it. But God did not say, thou shalt not strike the rock. Didn't have to. He told Moses to speak to the rock. Moses did not obey God, did he? And because of that, he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. You have the example of King Saul in 1 Samuel 13. He offered an offering to the Lord. He was told to wait till Samuel got there, who was a priest. Saul was not a priest. But he was afraid of the Philistines, so he went ahead and he offered the sacrifice anyway before Samuel got there. And when Samuel arrived, Samuel told him what God thought about it. It was an act of rebellion towards God, and God removed him from being king because of it. And then later in chapter 15, God told him to go down to Amalek and utterly destroy the Amalekites, but he saved, they're spared, the best of the sheep and the flocks, the herds. He said to offer sacrifices to God. And he also spared the life of the king, Agag. And when Samuel again showed up, Samuel rebukes Saul and tells him that obedience is better than sacrifice. It's better to hearken to the Lord through the word of the Lord. But Saul did what he wanted to do. We have another example. David Zotzkart. David built a cart specifically to transport the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. This cart was specifically designed for this purpose. It was a new cart. But God was not pleased with that. In fact, it cost a man his life. David became afraid of the Lord in 1 Chronicles 13 after Uzzah had been stricken dead by God because he reached up and touched the ark because the oxen had stumbled and shaken the ark and was about to fall. Uzzah was just trying to protect it, but it cost him his life. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. In chapter 15, he goes back and he reads and finds out how the ark of the Lord is to be transported. And he realizes his error. It was his error. He had done something different than what God commanded. We also find examples of Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12, verses 25 through 33. He had made two golden or two altars, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And he did this to keep the children of Israel from going back to Jerusalem. This was after the division between the north and the south. And Jeroboam was king of the north. And he had also appointed priests who were not of the Levitical order, sons of Aaron. Uzziah is another example. Uzziah was a good king. However, he too offered incense and was not authorized to do so. He was not a priest. And God struck him with leprosy, and he died from leprosy. We need to realize we cannot know the mind of God unless God has revealed it. And God has told us everything that he wants us to know and do. And that's what we must do, what he has said. There's a passage in Romans 10 and verse 17 that says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You know what, my friend? If God hasn't spoken about a thing, I cannot have faith regarding that thing. I cannot have belief that that is right or good or wanted by God. If God hasn't said it, I can't believe in it. And we could apply that to a lot of things that are practiced very commonly today in the lives and the worship styles of those who profess to be Christians. We're coming up on 
Easter. Easter, where in the Bible do we find that Christians worshipped God on Easter and made a big deal out of Easter? We don't find that. We simply find the first day of the week. Where disciples came together and they observed the Lord's Supper, commemorated the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are coming together every Lord's Day, every first day of the week. We can know that's right. We can know that's true. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And if it is not found in the Word of God, then we can't do it by faith. We cannot walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight, Paul says. And in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, we must learn to not think beyond what is written. Sadly, many people do just that. In fact, one of the common expressions that you will hear today is this. God did not say, I couldn't do that. And I've said this a lot. If that's our, our attitude, and we're asking the question, where did God say, I can't do it, in order for you to justify what you are doing? You're asking the wrong question. You ought to be, we ought to be asking, where does God tell me I can do it? Where does God authorize this action? Where does God authorize this work? Where does God authorize this act of worship? Where does God authorize this belief, this teaching? Where does it come from? Is it from heaven or is it from men? We need to be asking that question. Instead of, well, God didn't say I couldn't do it. God didn't tell me I'm, he's going to send me to hell if I, if I do that. That's the wrong attitude right there. Maybe that's the attitude that Nadab and Abihu had. God didn't say, I couldn't get the fire from over here. But see, God had told them where to get the fire from. God means what he says. And the God of the Old Testament is the same God that we are to worship and serve today. We don't have two different gods in the Bible. We have the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, which is exactly the same. He is still God. And he still expects and demands our trust, our love, our respect, and our obedience. And if we truly respect and we truly love and we truly trust God, then we're going to do what he says. Yes, there was something wrong with their attitude because they didn't do what he said. When we become the designers and the determiners of how, when, where we worship, what we believe, what we teach, we have diverted our worship and our faith from God to ourselves. We are no longer worshipers of God, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. They became worshipers of themselves. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's exactly what so many people are doing today. What is the difference between what Nadab and Abihu did and their use of strange fire and what so many people do today in what they call worship? You know, you, you look at the pomp and the circumstance in some worship services. You know, the, the preacher or the pastor or the priest, he's all decked out in this religious garb and he's got this big thing on his head and lets everybody know who he is. And it sets him apart from everybody else. And the liturgy that wrote, the, the things that they go through and they read. And then you have the extravagance. And then you have the entertainment. It's, uh, there are a lot of worship services that are much more like a rock and roll show than what we find in the Word of God. There was an excellent article posted in Facebook on Facebook. In fact, Sanctify... Uh, by Truth, uh, written by uh, Brother uh, Doy Moyer. Uh, we've run a lot of his articles in our bulletin. He wrote an excellent article yesterday about, and it's called, It's Too Simple. It's Too Simple. Talking about worship. For many people, the simplicity of our worship to God is just too simple, and it's not what they want. Well, therein lies the problem. It's not what they want. But what does God want? 
Isn't that the question that we ought to be asking? Instead of entertainment and being entertained, it ought to be about what does God want? Instead of being emotionally based, right? It's not emotion-based faith. We ought to be seeking faith-based emotion. There's nothing wrong with emotion. But that certainly is not the basis for what we do. What we want is, cannot be the basis for what we do. Contemporary worship is filled with, this is what I want. And people shop churches to find out what they, if a church is what they want in regard to entertainment and recreation. And what a church does for them instead of what they can do for God. Nadab and Abihu would say, whoa, be careful of that attitude. God means what he says. Something else they would tell us is that God must be respected. And this, of course, falls on the heels of what we just said. The only way to respect God, to demonstrate reverence for God, is to do what he says. In Leviticus 10, verses 2 and 3 again, So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. They disrespected God by not doing what he said. Friends, you say and you think that, well, you know, we're under grace now and we don't have to do this, we don't have to do that. It's true that our worship and our service to God today is really simplified from that of the Old Testament. That's true. But it's not liberty to do what we want as we please. We still must obey the Lord. We must do what He has told us to do. We must follow His instructions. The principle that Moses explicitly states in verse 3 is still very much true. Although the specifics of their worship have changed, we don't have to burn the incense. Although, I will say this, that all of those activities in the Old Testament, the burning of incense, the sacrifices, uh, the tabernacle, everything uh, that they did had a purpose to it. And it was a shadow or a type of something that was fulfilled in the new covenant and has a spiritual reality connected to it so even the burning of incense there is the spiritual reality and the spiritual reality is in fact more real than the than the physical observance of the burning of incense and it requires however the same attitude that we respect we reverence god in our service in fact the book of revelation references the burning of incense as the prayers of the saints. So our worship and our praying to God, that's a serious activity. It's an act of worship. We must approach God with reverence. In fact, I'll say to you that there is a real sense in which this is more important in the new covenant than it was in the old covenant. People think, well, we're not under the old covenant anymore. We're under grace. Now we can more or less do what we want. No, listen, we have more of a responsibility to listen to him who speaks from heaven. It was read in our hearing a few moments ago from, from Hebrews chapter 12. The point that the Hebrew writer makes beginning in verse 26 is that we must hear Jesus who speaks from heaven. In fact, you go back in, in that text and you go, or you go from that point on all the way to the end of Hebrews chapter 12. Well, I say, go back. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. And beginning in verse 26 of that text. Those who sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice for sin. And then he talks about how those who have transgressed the law of Moses, who have been found guilty by two or three witnesses of violating the law of Moses, he says this, how much worse should you suppose should be thought worthy of punishing, punishment for those who have trod underfoot the Son of God and, and discounted the Spirit of grace. You reject Jesus Christ. You reject the Spirit of grace. You disobey Jesus Christ and reject what He commands. That's worse than rejecting what Moses commanded. 
There is a real sense in which that is worse. You think that you're going to be let off because you disobeyed Jesus, but those who disobeyed Moses, they were held responsible for their actions? It doesn't work that way. God should never be addressed in a casual or trivial way. It's a serious matter, Psalms 89 and verse 7. It is essential that we approach the presence of God in our lives and worship with reverence, with awe, respect. And we do that by honoring His Word, by obeying it. Only the holy, those who have truly consecrated themselves, have a right to come into the presence of God and are accepted in the presence of God. Those are the ones who have truly turned away from the things of this world. And we are commanded as Christians to do just that. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, all the way down through chapter 7, verse 1. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and I will receive you. In fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 1, the Apostle Paul there instructs and commands, in fact, that we purify ourselves, and this goes back into chapter, all the way back into chapter 6 and verse 14 and following. The idea is that we must be holy if we're going to be accepted by God. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Nadab and Abihu, perhaps they would say that worship and truth is very, very important. And not just how we feel. Feelings, you know, passionate worship is important. And let us never get the idea that we just we can just go through certain motions, you know, and have a more of a liturgical form of worship. Our worship must be passionate. Giving our best to the Lord with love and sincerity. In fact, if you'll go back in this text into chapter 9, you know, they had, the children of Israel had been delivered and they were now at the point of instituting this new style, this new system of worship. And great sacrifice had been made for God. And the glory of the Lord then appears before the whole congregation and they see His glory. And fire comes out from heaven and devours the offering. And I'm sure that they were experiencing some strong emotions at this point, wouldn't you? They were enthusiastically engaged in their worship. Of course, they were also in fear, or should have been. They realized that they were in the presence of the Holy God. And they knew it. And no question they had some strong emotions flowing on that day. And perhaps even Nadab and Abihu were kind of carried up in the emotions of the moment. And they did not take seriously their, their offering to the Lord. Just because we feel a certain way certainly does not make it right. Our emotions, our feelings must be disciplined by the truth. We must have faith-based emotions, not emotional-based faith. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end there of the ways of death. Just because something seems right doesn't make it right. Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10, 23. We do not have the ability to determine what is right or what is wrong. That includes our, that includes our feelings about things. Or maybe Nadab and Abihu also would say, grace doesn't allow disobedience. God is gracious, but his grace must not be taken for granted. Listen, a lot of people think, well... We're not under the old law anymore. Now we're under grace. There was no grace under the old law. That's a false notion. There was grace under the old law. Now, it is true enough that when you talk about justification, that the grace was pointing to what was going to be accomplished in Jesus Christ. That's true. 
And true forgiveness was not actually found in the law system itself. But God provided in the law a means by which men could be saved. Okay? So there is grace there. We find grace in the fact that God had chosen the children of Israel. That God had blessed them. That God had delivered them. He had saved them. They didn't deserve it. That is grace. God had given them the law. And He had chosen the children of Aaron to be priests. God had chosen Nadab and Abihu to be priests. That's grace. They didn't deserve it. But it is the grace of God that placed Nadab and Abihu where they were. And thus, actually, it gave them more responsibility because of who they were. And they could not take His grace for granted. And instead of recognizing the great responsibility that God's grace had provided them, they moved away from their obedience to rebellion. And they did that which God had not commanded. I'm sure they would say that we are to rejoice in His grace and be thankful. But we must also respect His holiness. We must respect His honor. That He is God. And the only way to truly do that is by submitting our will to His will in all things. Paul, in fact, makes this point in Galatians 2, verses 20 and 21. He points out that, yes, he was saved, but he, his obedience to the gospel, his service, his full, total dedication to Jesus did not frustrate the grace of God. Our obedience doesn't frustrate the grace of God. That's a false economy that many people have established. Grace does not exclude Obedience. It does not deny the necessity of obedience. It includes it. In fact, the only way that we can receive God's grace is through a faith that submits to the will of God. That's the only way. People say, well, Ephesians 2.8, yeah, we're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. It is true that works do not constitute the basis of our justification or our salvation. But I tell you what, our faith is the means of accessing God's grace. And what kind of faith must we have? The same kind of faith that Israel had in Joshua chapter 6 when they marched around Jericho to receive the gift. Joshua 6 and verse 2. It was a gift given to them. In order to receive that gift, however, they had to do what God says. Hebrews 11 and verse 30 says, The walls of Jericho fell by faith after they were encompassed for seven days. We see that the faith of Israel brought about and received the grace that God had promised. Naaman is another excellent example of the principle in 2 Kings chapter 5. God saved Naaman from leprosy. He healed him of his leprosy through Naaman's faith. Naaman had enough faith to go and dip seven times in the river Jordan. Naaman didn't deserve it, so it's by grace. It's unmerited favor. But the only way that he was to receive that unmerited favor is to submit to God's commandments. He wasn't a sinless man. He didn't earn his healing. He didn't deserve it. He simply by faith did what God said. Same thing is true for us today. We receive God's grace by complying with God's terms or conditions. By faith. We trust God enough to do what he says. Those Christians on the day of Pentecost, those who became Christians in Acts chapter 2, they did so by obeying the command to repent and be baptized. Now, when they repented and they were baptized, in verse 41, we're told that they received the word of the Lord and they were baptized. Some 3,000 souls were added to them that day. They received the grace of God by submitting to the conditions or the terms that God had given. But let me also say this. The only way that we can continue in God's grace, His unmerited favor, is to abide in the teaching of Christ. If we do not abide in the teaching of Christ, we will not abide in His favor, His unmerited favor. You know, it states in Genesis chapter eight, 6 and verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so Noah was a man who was experiencing God's grace before he built the ark. And it was because of Noah serving the Lord, being faithful to the Lord, that God told Noah, commanded Noah to build the ark. So 
Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What if Noah decided, you know what, I don't think I need to build this ark in order for God to save me. God can save me without an ark. He can make me fly. He can suspend me above the waters if he wants to. God can save me in a lot of ways without me having to do all this work. And by the way, if I do all this work, then that means that I've saved myself, and we know that that's just not the way things work. And that wouldn't be by faith. That would be by works. See, Noah didn't have that false concept of grace and works. He just simply knew the fact and simple fact that if I trust God enough to do what he says, I will receive his grace. And that is by faith and not by works. It's not by meritorious deserving. Israel is another example in Exodus chapter 14. They were saved by God's grace from Egypt. But we also find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, although they had been saved, they had entered into a covenant relationship with God, they were God's chosen elect people. Yet most of them died in the wilderness because they did not continue in faith. They died because of unbelief. They were delivered from Egypt by faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. They were delivered from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea by faith, but they fell in the wilderness because they became unbelievers. Christians, Jesus says, if you abide in my words, you will abide in my love. John 15, 1 through 10. What if we do not bear fruit? What if we do not abide in the word of Christ? What if we do not remain attached to the vine ourselves? What if we refuse to submit to the vine? We will be cut off and we will be gathered and we will, we will be cast into the fire. So they would say God's grace does not allow for our disobedience. We must continue to be obedient to God and not take God's grace for granted. And finally, they would say God was right. God punished them. God sent fire from heaven and destroyed them. They would say to you, my friend, that God was right in doing that. He had just cause. We dishonored him. We disobeyed him. We disrespected him. We are examples of what happens when you disobey God. They'd say, listen to our example. And don't follow it. They would say God is right. In fact you go on down to chapter 10 and verse 6. Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar his sons. Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes lest you die. And wrath come upon all of the people. But let your brethren the whole house of Israel be well the burning which the Lord has kindled. This was God's anger being manifested on Nadab and Abihu because of their sin. It was their sin that brought this upon them. It wasn't God. It wasn't his law. It was their rebellion, rejection of his law. They knew what to do. Everything had been spelled out step by step, point by point, and they knew what they were to, to do. They simply did not do it. We too have tasted the good word of God and we know of his grace. How will we respond to his truth? Will we, you know, some people, they think about God's rules, God's law. And they say, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not fair. That's too harsh. That's too strict. If that's our attitude towards God's law, then we do not have the proper respect or reverence for God himself. We need to accept what his law is. Respect him through obeying his law. And in Romans chapter 2 and verses 2 through 11, God's judgment is righteous. He is not partial. We will be judged according to our works. Every one of us will be. So in other words, we will get according to what we've planned, right? We will reap what we sow. Many argue that God would not send people to hell who did not obey him. In fact, they accuse him of being unjust if he were to do so. Our emotional feelings are not to be and cannot be the standard of what is true. 
or determiner of what is right as far as God is concerned. Who are we to sit in judgment of God? That'd be the first point I'd like to ask and raise. Romans 2 and verse 5. Who are you to question God? In fact, we ought to recognize that all of his judgments are indeed right. Romans chapter 3 and verse 5. If everyone in the world rejects God's commandments, they're still his commandments. They're still true, and we must respect that. In chapter 9 and verses 14 through 20, the Apostle Paul makes this very point. Who are you to reply against God? But here's the reality of it. Just like with Nadab and Abihu, and just like every other person who has received God's judgment, they receive God's judgment not because of God, not because of His law per se, not because of His will, but because of their disrespect and their disobedience to God's law. God sets before us a path. And if we follow that path, we'll find blessing, we'll find life, we'll find salvation. But then you have the other path. And if we go down that path, there's only one end to that path, and that is destruction. We choose which path we're going to go down. We make that choice. Matthew 7 and verse 13, Enter ye in by the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are who go therein. But straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. Yes, there is a way that leads to life and God has provided that way. And that way is Jesus Christ himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. God made provision. My friend, listen, God was right in condemning Nadab and Abihu. God is right for condemning everyone who does not honor his son. But he has provided a means of salvation. In fact, if God had not provided his son, everyone would be lost because of sin. In Mark 16 and 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. But he who does not believe shall be, will be condemned. See, you've got a choice here. You decide. You choose. Am I going to choose God's salvation and God's blessings and eternal life? Or am I going to choose condemnation? That's my choice. And God is right and He is just in Condemning those who do not believe and those who do not obey. Acts 2 and verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's for you and your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's, that's up to you. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth, to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, that's you, to be testified of in due time. God gave his only begotten Son. Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus made a way for salvation. God wants you to learn that way, and He wants you to be saved. It's up to you. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. And that's talking about the judgment of God. It's going to come. It's going to happen. You are going to be judged. But, this long, but His long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In verse 14 of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. That's on you, and that's on me. If I'm going to be found without spot, if I'm going to be found blameless before the Lord, and take advantage of his long-suffering and not condemning me instantly like he did David and Abihu, he didn't strike everybody dead who disobeys him. He's long-suffering, he's patient. They were a lesson for us. Like Ananias and Sapphira, also in Acts 5, was a lesson for us. God is long-suffering. He gives us opportunity. 
Let us not squander that opportunity. Nadab and Abihu, what, what would they tell us? They would tell us that God means what he says, that God's silence is not permissive, that God's silence does not authorize, that God means what he says. They would tell us that God is to be respected above all things, that we must consider him and regard him as holy, and we do that by obeying him because disobedience is a, a, a manifestation of our disregard for his holiness. And to worship in truth, not just our feelings. We must worship according to God's instructions. Regardless of how emotionally we are, we still must do what God says. And we cannot take God's grace for granted. He has provided salvation. Don't reject it. Don't refuse it. Don't think that I can live however I want to live. I still must submit to God's will in all things. And... Finally, God is right. God is right in all that He does. And if I'm lost, it's going to be my fault, not God's. If you're lost, my friend, the same thing is true. It's your fault, it's not God's. My prayer, my hope is that every person here in this assembly this morning We'll stand before the Lord, and we all will, by the way, stand before the Lord, but my prayer is that we all stand before the Lord justified in His sight. That we are found without spot, and we're found in a holy, pleasing, acceptable state before our God. And the only way that we can do that is submit to His will by faith. Maybe you're here this morning, and there's something you need to do in order to establish that relationship to begin with. You need to be baptized into Christ by faith. You need to turn away from your sin, confess Him as Jesus, confess Jesus as Lord, and you also need to be baptized into Him for the remission of your sins. Or maybe you have once done that and you've turned away from God. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to repent of and you need to, need to stop doing and turn away from. God is holy. And we must turn away from our sins if we're going to have fellowship with Him. Anything we can do to help you, why don't you come while we stand, while we sing.